Romans chapter 1, we'll be moving on to some degree. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, I'll read to verse 23. We'll probably make our way about halfway through, but I want us to have it all in context. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile, and their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, you may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, we come to you, and we would ask that by your grace, we would not be so stupid in our unbelief, darkened in our understanding, and foolish in our rebellion, that we might exchange your glorious word for invention and flights of fantasy, but that our lives would begin and end where your book begins and ends. Not only in how we were made and what is coming in the future, but how we live our lives today. That our lives would be fixed firmly upon the rock. The word of God made flesh. And all that he has said to us in his word. May we worship and adore you. For you have worked in our hearts true saving faith. We ask this then in your name. Amen. Many seasons in our own home. A wonderful chore. Or as we call it contribution sheet has been pasted either on some bulletin board or the refrigerator held up by a series of magnets. And on that chore sheet is the list of things that each of the persons of the household are called to do every day, every week. This is the list of things that you are called to do in light of the mastery and the authority that God has given to the parents called to run that home. And it has been masterfully done. And as beautiful as the list is, as it covers all the things, and if they are done, the house will look spotless. (laughs) Again, it is not that we do not know. It is that we do not do. And so that list often gets ignored. Perhaps you will say, I forgot. How many times did you go to the fridge to get cereal? How often do you see it 
and ignore the fact that it is there. I have ignored it, and others in my home as well. I'm sure you may have lists like that, and we all have lists like that either uh, in our jobs, in our schools, in our homes. Uh, We have it in the Word. How we are to live in light of God's revelation, and primarily, at least in terms of God's revelation, there are two primary ways in which God reveals himself to men. There is the book of nature, of creation, and there is the book of scripture. Both are infallible in that they say exactly what God wants them to say. The problem lies in our hearts. We do not see them for what they are. We ignore them, and we make for ourselves a law that is distinct from the law of God. Now, what Paul is doing as he goes through the book of Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2 is he is setting up not just what the gospel is, but the necessity for how it should, why it should go out into all the world. This is what we do in a sales call. I'm not reducing the gospel in Paul to a salesman, but the way in which you sell something to someone is you talk about the beauty of the thing itself and why you actually need it. This is sometimes why salesmen get a reputation, because they're trying to sell you something that you don't actually need. Can you imagine someone actually going up to someone's house now and actually making an Encyclopedia Britannica sale? For $3,000, you can get what is already free online. That sounds like a pretty good deal. Now, I do like a physical book, but you probably, right? All of us at least have parents or grandparents that were boomers. We have a set of Encyclopedia Britannica somewhere in the house. All of us have touched one of those, and they are beautiful. They are beautiful. But they are, in terms of information, largely unnecessary to have in print. Not so with the gospel. And what Paul is doing in Romans 1 and Romans 2 is he is talking about the only way in chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, that you and I can be saved from faith to faith. Faith is the instrument by which all, all of the mercies and benefits of Christ's redeeming work are given to anyone with faith. Small or large faith, big or small, it matters not. It need be only faith. What it cannot be is what? Works or rebellion. Rebellion is covered in the second part of chapter 1. Works is covered in chapter 2. You cannot flee from the wrath of God in a way that actually makes you or takes you past the reach of God's condemning hand. Though all men try this in in some fashion. Except for the one who says, all right, you got me. I'm a sinner. And by faith they lay hold of the mercies of Christ. So what Paul is doing in verse 18 of chapter 1, all the way through chapter 2, and even into chapter 3, which is a theological treatise of how no man is righteous, is to further prove the case that it is only by, you are only justified by grace through faith. Three points then that I want to make this morning. Proving the case that righteousness can only be found with Christ. Proving the case what is shown is seen, said, 
is heard. What is shown is seen, said is heard. And then thirdly, sharpening the point a bit further. Sharpening the point a bit further. Let's look at this first point, proving the case. Uh, I have discovered a wonderful volume. It's a commentary on the book of Romans, and that's Charles Hodges' commentary. There's several versions. Pick one out if you want one. They're all very good. This is what he says. The apostle, having stated that the only righteousness available in the sight of God is that which is obtained by faith, proceeds here in verse 18 and following to prove that such is the case. The proof required that he should, in the first instance, demonstrate that the righteousness which is of the law or of works was insufficient for the justification of the sinner. What Paul is communicating to the Romans is the gospel that he will take to Spain. It is a fit-all situation. Perhaps Romans should have been the first book I preached as a church planter. But I think, like many pastors, you get a little bit intimidated by it because there's a reference for it that probably isn't necessarily wholesome or good, though it is God's word. What Paul is talking about is something as it relates to the two ways that we choose. It is the way that God has revealed and is the way that we often invent for ourselves. And all those ways can be summarized in man's attempt to clothe themselves in a righteousness that ultimately does not satisfy the wrath of God. And so in verse 18 we read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven... That it is the revelation, the divine revelation of God. It's righteous against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Now, the first thing we see about this truth is that it is clearly revealed. The word there is apocalypto. There are the apocalyptic books of scripture like Revelation and Zechariah and Daniel. And then there are other sections in other minor prophets and elsewhere that we call apocalyptic literature. And what it's revealing as a genre are things that are even still, to our eyes, concealed. Revelation tells us about something that will happen, well, how we are to think about the fall of Jerusalem and then what also remains for the saints in the future. All of Scripture, though, is apocalypto. It is the revelation of God. Now, for the unbeliever, that revelation that is coming down is one that is received not as pleasant favor. It is not received as peace and mercy. It is wrath. Because it is a righteous God revealing himself to sinful men that have no true way out of their unrighteousness. They are always in trouble. And they sense it. And they sense it clearly. Because what is being revealed is wrath. The word there is orge. And it just means just vengeance. God isn't angry just because he can be. Kids, you know, there are times where your parents get angry with you and it was unprovoked. And that's sin. And they have to confess that. That is never God's wrath. God's wrath is not unprovoked, it is provoked. And it is provoked 
because of what Sproul calls cosmic treason. The reason why it's called cosmic treason is not because it happens some, some other planet. It's because it is done against the master of the universe, the true transcendent king of everything. And so we have a revelation that is clear. That revelation is vengeance. And that vengeance is felt pointedly as a response against our neglect of the true religion and from that, impiety. Impiety just means ungodliness. Unlike or without piety. See? It's beautiful. Learning a language and not just sight reading and learning to converse someone. Learning a language is a wonderful thing because you have prefixes and suffixes and all the stuff in between and you can sort of figure this stuff out. Impiety is the result of an expressed, willful rejection of the true religion. Now, by true religion, I mean the only religion that is acceptable and revealed in Scripture. And I'm not talking about a, a system necessarily, a structure. What I'm talking about first and foremost here is the whole content of what God requires of us. This reveals a true religion. And at the heart of all true religion, I think we can say, is the cross of Jesus Christ. And so with verse 18 and then going into 19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, and we'll open that up in a bit, a bit more, for God has shown it to them. Man can never say then, I didn't see the list. You just got cereal out of the fridge. It's literally staring you in the face. And I know it's in black and white because we don't have a color printer at home. But it's literally in black and white. It's right there. But mom, no, it's right there. And so man can never say and ought never say as it relates to the knowledge of a God who burns with vengeance against their sin. I didn't know. In fact... The proof that they do know is found in their rebellion because they act against it. Because when they open the fridge to get the milk, they're having to shut their eyes so that they can say, I guess I didn't see the list. I, have you shut your eyes every time you've opened it? Well, maybe I'm looking over here. Do you understand the vanity and the folly of this excuse? Now, here is where I will go, and I'm going to give you the end before we get there. As it relates to evangelism and apologetics, the main thrust of our efforts is not to inform that there is a God, that he is angry, but it is to inform that there is a way out of that anger. And in order to receive by faith the gospel, you must stop digging that ditch that cannot hold water. Empty cisterns that cannot hold water. All right, let's move to the second point. We've looked at proving the case. Paul is now showing us, and we'll go back to this time and again, that it is not by any other way than by faith. Second point. What is shown is seen 
said is heard. I don't think it's possible to overemphasize the reality that when man says, I do not know what they're talking about is not wrath, but salvation. And then there are those among us who absolutely know because they've been in the church, they've known Christians, they've heard the gospel. Again, this is what Hodge says. Men know the righteous judgment of God. They know that those who commit sin are worthy of death. As this is an ultimate truth, existing in every man's consciousness, it is properly assumed and made the basis of the apostle's argument. And then he continues. The word, athletheia, which is truth, is used in the scriptures in a more comprehensive sense than our word. It often means what is right as well as what is true and is therefore used in antithesis to unrighteousness. Not just true, but good. It has a moral quality to the word. It is used especially of moral and religious truth. And he says, see John 3.21, 8.32, 2 Corinthians 4.2. If you want these notes, I'm happy to email them to you. It is therefore equivalent to true religion. That is what is true and right or good in reference to God and God's requirements of him. You see, it is not just that the sun seems to be yellow, that these things are green. It's not just truth for truth's sake, data. It's not facts. Only, it is a compulsion in light of those facts to revere the one who made everything. And the sense that in light of what I'm seeing, there should be in my heart some emotional response, some sense of reverence to it. And so in light of what men see, what do they do? They make images that look like creation that kind of summarize the mystique of it all, and they worship those things. And they exchange the worship of the creator for creation. Why do they do this? Because that is all man can do without the light of God's word. We can only reshape, reform, imagine, and invent the stuff that we see around us. Have you ever thought of a purple elephant? Well, now you have, right? And let's say that purple elephant, <clears throat> we don't know exactly what happens at the end of our lives necessarily, but let's say that purple elephant has wings and mighty horns. And inside of its stomach is a chamber into which at the end of our lives we climb and it takes us to this planet. And on that planet, we will live, you see what I'm doing? We have a glorious capacity to imagine. Do you know what happens in Mormonism when you die? You are mysteriously taken to another planet where, as a male, it is filled with countless virgins, and you will go and you will pop. It's amazing how all the cults have the same eschatology, and they are all, all very hyper-patriarchal. The same with Islam. It's just a different planet. And there the women are not quite so excited about the idea. Do you understand? 
And where do all of these false religions flow from? This exercise of seeking to, as we see in verse 18, suppress, and then in 23 and 22, uh, 22, professing to be wise, they became fools and changed or exchanged the glory or the goodness or the truth of the incorruptible God and made things after his likeness. And so it smells like religion, it talks like religion, but it cannot be true religion because it does not come from above, heaven, verse 18, but it comes from below, it comes from the earth, it comes from in here, and really it comes from here. Really, all of these corruptions of the law of God are excuses, are systematized explanations of why we should be allowed to pursue our corrupt desires. Right? That is why now in this country there is an argument over whether or not we should have blasphemy laws. Have you seen this argument? And there are many Christians that say we should never in a secular state, which is the problem, have blasphemy laws. Because you can't punish someone who doesn't believe in God for blaspheming. Which is interesting, since God does that. But the reality is this. We already have blasphemy laws. Those blasphemy laws are, you cannot speak ill of those people or groups that are protected and enshrined by the culture as revered and honored and special. Who are those people? Well, just go look. You'll find it very quickly. All men, therefore, live in light of and organize their lives around a systematized religion. And at the top of that religion is a god or gods and a priesthood. And there are rules and regulations. There is sin. There is righteousness. There is condemnation. But the only religion that is true is the religion at which Christ stands at the center, where he has died for our sins, and the instrument by which we are brought into his saving grace is faith. Faith. Now, how and where is this revelation of wrath seen and heard? In two places. Scripture, yes. But here Paul is talking about those who have not opened the scriptures or who do not receive the scripture as God's word. In themselves, in nature as those who are created by God, and outside themselves as they are surrounded by what? Let's look at verse 20. His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. The stars are missionaries. Do you know why secular man calls space space and why you ought not to? It's because they need the stars to stop singing. They need space to have no personality whatsoever. Why? Because the Bible says the heavens, what? Declare. Do you know how big stars are? Stars are big. They appear small, but that's because they're very distant. And every single one of those stars burns 
and makes noise in its roaring consumption of gaseous material. And all of that heat which follows the laws of the universe that God has designed is saying with noise, I have been made by one who is greater than I am. Do not worship me. And yet here we are. We insignificant little worms. And we like to walk around our house in our diapers and we say, I'm not happy. Everybody do what is good for me. Right? Let's put it in perspective. Well, what is that perspective? That everything around us says we are in trouble. We are in danger. God is angry because we do not worship him as we ought. And if you choose a system that is not God's system, it is the manifestation, not of actually seeking salvation according to God's righteousness, but of escaping of running, of being a prodigal under the righteous rule of God. So what does it take to escape? It takes sinful men, they need to design a system in which God is not required for that system to work, and then they must shove that system down upon their life and everyone else's life that is around them, so that they never feel as though God's wrath is actually against them. Do you see this? Do you see why there is no peace between the righteous who love the law of God and the unrighteous who hate the law of God? This is why it is so foolish for a person to say today, I don't care what you do in the privacy of your own bedroom, Just don't make me adopt it. The whole point of rebellion is to do what? To not feel like you're in rebellion. So when a rebellious child leaves their home, where do they go? Into the company of other rebels. Why? Because it justifies, in a way that isn't real justification, the decisions, the thoughts, and intentions of their heart. And those rebellious people are often doing the same things. They are filling their lives. They are digging empty cisterns that cannot hold water. They are constantly and actively suppressing the truth and exchanging it for unrighteousness because the next fix doesn't satisfy as much as the last fix. That's what it takes to escape. What it takes to escape the glory of God is a life devoted to destruction. And you may not see it that way. Most people do not. In fact, the only way you see it as destruction is if God, by the Holy Spirit, shows you that way to be a vain and foolish and condemnable way. And so that leads me then to my last point. Sharpening the point. For the sake of theology and having a good, robust, accurate, systematic theology, what we must say is that all men know God, but not all men worship God. They know of his wrath, they know of his identity to some degree, 
that he is greater than they, that they are not him. And they therefore owe him allegiance and a debt that they cannot pay. This is why every religion has a system of atonement. Right now in our culture, what is the system of atonement when you break social laws? You must immediately apologize to the aggrieved party. And guess what happens after that? You don't actually get, you don't actually get forgiven. You have to go over here for a little while and suffer, right? You, if you're an actor, you've got to go make some TV movies. But later, over time, after we have forgotten your sins or you find out some of the sins that we have, you get to go back and make big films again. This is the world in which we live. It is a world that has no concept of redemption because our whole view of sin constantly fluctuates. All men know God, but they do not worship him. And so all men then are living in active and open rebellion. All men with eyes in their heads and ears in their heads and mouths and senses can see and do not actually believe that we are the product of billions of years of happy accidents. They don't live that way. In fact, have you ever met someone who lives as though the evolutionary model is true? It's a, it's a, it's a very desperate and depressing sort of existence. And there is no moral framework, framework which gives grounding to why they should live. So what are they doing? They are suppressing the truth of God in some ways and embracing it in others. We call this borrowing from the Christian worldview. All men know God but do not worship him. But what is being shown to all men is not where salvation can be found. God does that through the preaching of his word. He does it through the word. This is what Calvin says. <clears throat> for Paul's object, for Paul's object, was to teach us where salvation is to be found. He has already declared that we cannot obtain it except through the gospel. But as the flesh will not willingly humble itself so far as to assign the praise of salvation to the grace of God alone, Paul says that the whole world is deserving of eternal death. Now what I mean is nature, creation does not tell us where salvation is to be found. Paul is. And Paul is saying that the world desperately without the revelation of God, can do nothing but reject and rebel and suppress and exchange. Now, in chapter 2, Paul will say, what about those Jews who had the word of God? Well, guess what? Even with the word of God, we reject. And what we hide behind is not the revelation of mercy, but the exaltation of self in our keeping of the law as a means of justifying ourselves. But more on that sometime later. What Paul is saying is that though salvation is not revealed, truth of his wrath is. And so it can be made as an appeal to all people that as it relates to your soul, or whatever you call it, your life, 
you stand condemned before a being higher and more great than you. And every choice, every decision is made in light of that. Let me give a little metaphor for Paul's theology. The people of whom Paul is speaking here in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23, are like those swimming about in a pool. And maybe, parents, you've seen your kids do this with a beach ball. They're trying to take the revelation of God and drown it. You ever seen a kid try to get on a beach ball and keep it under the water and they're rolling over and they just can't because they lack the mass, the strength, the endurance? That is what an unbeliever is doing. He is taking the revelation of God and he is trying to drown it under the water. What does that take? Well, it takes balance. It takes dexterity. It takes strength. It takes endurance. It is certainly no enjoyable way to spend a day in the pool. And this is what the word of God does. This is what the apologist and the evangelist does. They swim over to that person, exerting much effort, and they go, you want to let go? And they're going, no. Because what happens if the truth of God all of a sudden rises and bursts forth from the surface and they see it for what it is? What? That's the thing they do not want. But this is what the preaching of the word of God does. This is what the Holy Spirit does. It confronts men with their incapacity to build a system that actually saves. It is the Tower of Babel. Let us build a tower that will reach to heaven. And God in the Bible says, well, I'm going to go down and look at it. What are you building there, you puny little humans? What is that? And what is the only righteous divine response from heaven against a system of suppressing and exchanging, of building a life on the sand, a house on the sand? What is the only righteous response? It's judgment. And so what Paul is doing is he's proving and sharpening the point that only faith brings salvation. Faith in the, de- the dead, buried, and risen Messiah. Because all other positions that men build leave them in a state of condemnation. And this is the whole world. This is everyone. They are knowledgeable but condemned. They are rebellious in relationship to this knowledge, and then they are hopeless apart from grace. And so this is why it is helpful for us to see Romans not merely as a treatise of systematic theology, but as the weapon, the truth that will win the world for Jesus Christ. So what is Paul's point? Righteousness, righteousness and thusly peace can only be found in Christ. Let's pray.